I never cease to have respect for this group of people who've often been scorned and scoffed at whilst having the courage to do life carrying immeasurable amounts of trauma under very difficult circumstances. And they often find they have huge resources within them with which they're able to embrace their new life with. And that gives me such joy. Hello, and welcome to another in our Human Givens podcast series. I'm Julia Wellstead, and today I'm discussing obesity and how to restore the person behind it with expert Fiona Sheldon. Fiona works as a Human Givens psychotherapist in a busy private practice in Wiltshire, where one of her specialties lies in helping people with obesity and associated body image difficulties. Fiona is also a specialist in trauma, uh, especially for ex-military and their families and for emergency services personnel. And she continues to work with the South Sudanese who are currently refugees in Uganda, providing training and emotional health and trauma awareness using the Human Givens approach. Hello, Fiona. Hello, Julia. Today we're talking about obesity and body image, and thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Now, perhaps we should start by, could you tell us about your work with people struggling with obesity? Uh, Four years ago, I was contacted by a local GP whose practice had taken on the local commissioning group's provision of the Tier 3 and five stepped care for weight management across the county of Wiltshire. They were looking for psychological input that would be able to treat the often long-standing emotional health issues that underlie obesity. I replaced an IAPT practitioner and work as part of a multidisciplinary team with GPs, a nutritional advisor, a physio and myself. Patients are referred from GPs across the county to tier three when they have engaged in tier one, which is DIY weight loss. Uh, tier two, which requires support from Weight Watchers, Slimming World, or your GP, and can show lifestyle changes. And tier five is support post-bariatric surgery. So first they have a medical assessment with us and are seen regularly by the nutritional advisor who refers them to physio or psychotherapy if and when it's required. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Fiona, for telling us about that. It sounds like a really good system. I suspect there's quite a lot of strain on that system at certain times and in maybe in certain areas within the country. Uh, yeah, the funding is is not good, but a lot of the recent additional funding has gone into the bariatric surgery. Although there are programs where county council engages in promoting the education around lifestyle and supporting people with getting into exercise and yes, av- you know, availing themselves of nutrition yes because because hopefully there's a lot of steps before bariatric surgery is is reached as a as a as a way forward what are what are the factors that might contribute to obesity this is an area where there's much ongoing research and our knowledge is growing all the time the world of nutrition is much more complex and confusing than generally thought The myth that's held sway over the last half century persuading us to eat a high-carb, low-fat diet, which has been the root of so much ill health and death, is now known for what it is, a myth. 
This fat phobic paradigm has long dominated the thinking behind the desire for health. However, it is an ongoing challenge to keep up with the current knowledge and to get the up-to-date evidenced information about healthy eating to the public. That's right enough because you know we we still see low-fat products in supermarkets. There's nothing particularly to say that that's no longer the way forward, mm. to my mind anyway. And understanding what the healthy fats are and making a conscious effort to put them into your diet is really important. Yes, uh, and quite complex. You know, if you're, if you're a busy person working, bringing up kids, etc. Yeah. It's, it's not straightforward, is it? No. And th- there are a number of contributory factors to this that have resulted in the escalation of obesity across the globe with few exceptions. Uh, There are metabolic reasons. We need to remember that mitochondrial and metabolic health is an emerging science that should give us many more answers in the future. The growing understanding of the role of our microbiome and the impact of the gut-brain axis on our health continues to answer important questions. Genetics influence obesity, where the fat goes in the body, and the predisposition to eating behaviours. An untreated, underactive thyroid can make a difference. Yes, of course. Mobility difficulties that are perceived as a barrier to exercise. Omega-3 fats, which are the good fats, are often missing or lacking in our daily diet, commonly replaced by trans fats that are detrimental to our health. And would that be because the the good fats are more expensive or the products they're in are more expensive? Um, yes, I think they have big. Corn oil is certainly um, is certainly cheaper probably than your coconut oil or your, your olive oil. Yeah. Um, and it's the quality of those oils that's important as well. Right. So even within olive oil or coconut oil, there are, there are different qualities. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Does get does get harder and harder, doesn't it, to to keep understanding? Yes, um, high intake of refined carbs and a huge increase increase in our daily sugar intake over the last five decades, often hidden by the food industry, whose profit margin, of course, is governed by making food tastier through the adding of sugar, fat, or salt. Ignorance about healthy eating and natural foods, alongside a reduced priority and skills to source and cook nutritious food at home um i often say if your grandmother wouldn't recognize it it isn't food <laughs> yes i've al- i've also heard um if you have to read the label to find out what it is don't buy it yeah, that's a which good I, one which is quite nice yes a reduced quality of nutrients in the food chain and the pollution from chemicals is a, is a, a factor i'm sure ah, so we so we eat more because our bodies are still craving those nutrients yes Yes. So we actually eat more to try and get the same nutrient value. Yeah. Mm. Fast food joints have risen astronomically in number in recent years. The grazing culture is now the norm for many when the last generation ate regular meals at regular times through the day and not in between. The discipline to fast seems to be fast disappearing for many. Yes, well said, yes. Larger portions. If you ever find an old dinner plate you will realise that it's a very different size to a modern one. Absolutely. I was actually shocked by that. Uh, I've 
sort of digging out some old my grandmother's I think dinner plates that they are much smaller yes yes yes. increased sedentary lifestyles so the use of the car children on screens instead of outside physical recreation of all sorts it's an increasing we're changing the way that we do life um and um what we eat hasn't quite caught up with that yes Um, And lastly, electricity. We have it freely available all of the time in this country anyway at the moment. Electromagnetic forces emitted by all our screens and the economic pressures impacting our ability to maintain balanced restorative sleep and the regulation of appetite. Right. And in what sense is electricity and electromagnetism, how is that affecting our levels of obesity? Uh, When we don't get balanced restorative sleep of the right quantity at the right time, our body's ability in the slow wave sleep to balance the hormones and regulate the appetite is is impacted. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings us nicely on, actually, to what are the physical and emotional health risks of obesity? Why is it a problem? Yeah, there are quite a number. Heart disease and stroke, cancer, type 2 diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, Alzheimer's disease. And then there are a number of common comorbidities which we see such as osteoarthritic and inflammatory changes, particularly in weight-bearing joints, impacting mobility and the ability to exercise. Fibromyalgia and chronic pain is often part of the picture. And sleep apnea, which profoundly affects uh, our balanced restorative sleep, often resulting in the need for a CPAP mask to be worn at night to ensure uh, a constant oxygen supply. So sleep apnea is where your breathing is interrupted, is that right? And that wakes you up. So there's a sort of cycle of, yes, Mm. yes, Mm. absolutely. And, And obesity can be a driving factor for that. Right. So, so really, what obesity is doing is enlarging or inflaming lots of different systems in our body and therefore putting them under strain and causing yeah. disease or yes. an inability to work properly. Yes, yeah. And Fiona, yeah, sorry, go, to go on. Increased anxiety, agoraphobia, depression um are linked to emotional capacity and body image problems often driven further by media or social media in particular with younger people so there are all sorts of factors that play a part in this picture yes yes and of course depression is a likely result of either a physical or an emotional problem yes yes yeah. Now, what, which actually brings us on to the next question. Can you explain the link between eating behaviours and emotional health? The most frequent emotionally driven eating behaviours I meet in the clinic are comfort eating, binge eating and eating in secret. Uh, it's often a challenge, A, to be aware of why you eat. Is it boredom, stress, fatigue, thirst or is it actual hunger? A bit of work there for the observing self that begins to ensure greater self-awareness. And B, to be aware of when and where you eat, at a table, in company, or at your desk while working, or in the car while driving, or in the cinema while watching, or in secret. If not in company, it is often in the trance state with our focus elsewhere. Yes. Yes, watching telly or even reading a book. Yes, the focus yes, is not on, sudden, not on the food. 
all of a sudden the whole bar of chocolate has gone or the whole <laughs> packet of biscuits is gone and we have no idea how that happened how that happened <laughs> yes and why do people seek especially emotional support from food what's the sort of origins of that well before i come on to that can i explain something else about yes of course that? what we were talking about nutritious food and sufficient water to ensure optimal hydration and brain function as you know are innate physical needs that need to be met optimally and those physical needs sit alongside the sufficient balanced sleep and the fresh air and the healthy amounts of sun exposure plus the mobility and exercise that equates with our calorific intake. So all of these physical needs, as you know, must be met in balance and a foundation to our emotional health. So the link is built into the way- The link is there, yes. Yes. And it's helpful to understand also that the dreaming mechanism in the REM sleep takes priority over the slow wave sleep. So each night to ensure our sanity over our physical health. So the more emotionally healthy we are, the more balanced and restorative the sleep is, leading to greater physical health and healing, better regulation of hormones and appetite, and less need for emotional eating. So reducing the burden on the dreaming by resolving the contributors to our unresolved emotional arousal at the end of the day will restore the sleep balance and assist in managing our weight healthily. So it's sounding to me as if it's a vicious cycle. You worry, you more REM sleep, less restorative sleep. Yeah. The belt, you're out of whack. Yes. But there also, by definition in there, is a virt what I would call a virtuous cycle, which if you can get onto it, maybe with the help of a therapist, you can, you can that, get off the vicious cycle. Yes. And understanding that that cycle exists and then working on making changes that enable that to happen is exactly what we're about really yes yes yeah. so does that bring us on to this what, why we seek emotional support specifically mm. from food because it strikes me actually that some people if they're very worried about something stop eating whereas other people start eating does that make sense um yes you do meet people who um in a high state of emotional arousal very often where there's it's chronic a, a chronic problem for them um that one of their autonomic physical responses to that anxiety is as we all know is nausea and loss of appetite yeah so they stop eating in that situation but the comfort eating how why do people seek emotional support from food usually because other healthier forms of support are missing or aren't available for whatever reason and their needs aren't being met well yes so it could be loneliness yeah bad bad relationships mm -hmm. something going wrong at work yes so for example their ability to build or maintain healthy relationships can be compromised for a range of reasons it might be that their emotional capacity is low due to active past trauma or conditioned emotional thinking patterns or grief or a combination of all of them. Or their social skills are poorly developed due to a combination of personality, lack of attachment, the influences they've had or poor modelling of the skills in the past 
or just disadvantaged due to autistic traits, or they may be in a place or an environment that's toxic and doesn't enable them to get those innate needs met for yeah. emotional connection or positive attention between people, uh, community, feeling valued and having, you know, a sense of purpose. Yeah. So all our essential emotional needs, really. Yeah. All yeah. of them. Yeah. Really. And are, are there different types of obesity? Um, from a large genetic study looking at two different kinds of obesity, we know that both of these following kinds are kinds of obesity are bad for our health. So one they've called overall obesity, which is measured by the BMI and maybe more to do with the brain controlling appetite. Right. And so that's the body mass index. Is that what, what it is? Yes, yes, yes. yes. And then there's what they call central obesity. So fat around the belly or the hips, which is measured by waist and hip circumferences. And it may be more of a concern than was thought that you're shaped like an apple rather than a pear. So apple is worse than pear. Apple is worse than pear. Yes. But this scientific study has got a way to go, I think, on that score. They're, They're working on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think about this? Are some people purposely trying to harm themselves, or is obesity the outcome of a coping strategy, as we've as we've already spoken about? Would, would op- anyone do it to purposely try to harm themselves? The operative word there is purposely, isn't it? Mm. Overeating is a form of self harm and can also be linked with addiction. Um, sugar is reputed to be more addictive than cocaine and as we know it gets into most things I've had patients who've been abused who would eat to be overweight and therefore can wear baggy clothing and become more invisible as a protective strategy for survival right yes some comfort eat whenever previous traumatic patterns dictate that comfort's required, but not necessarily consciously. It's helpful to look, I think, at the various behaviours in terms of how they might be aiding survival or meeting needs, even though based on out-of-date information in the case of past trauma. Much eating happens when locked in the trance state in the emotional brain. Therefore, the subconscious can play a huge role in the moment. Then there is the guilt, remorse, fear, self-loathing, or the pain that follows. Yes, yes. So all, all the um, emotions that, yes. that, that further the suffering, really and feed into that uh, that cycle yes so given all of that uh, I can almost answer the next question myself but in the, the the route to solving obesity why isn't focusing on nutrition and lifestyle enough quite often people say to me in the clinic I know lots about eating healthily and I've learned lots about exercise and lifestyle changes but there is a bit of my brain that I don't have control over and they're often desperate to have control of this and understand what is happening and why. It's worth questioning whether the nutritional information they have is accurate, sufficient to produce positive change or sufficient emotional energy to drive and maintain the changes required. Foka referred to me when it is suspected that there are underlying emotional elements driving the eating out of balance. Just focusing on the obvious often isn't enough because it's that underlying emotional imbalance or not getting needs met. 
that mm. is actually what's going on. Yes, yeah. yes. And for the same reason, I suspect this next question will be, why, why do people struggle to maintain weight loss? So they've lost it and then they yo-yo, so what we call yo-yo dieters. So they pile it all back on again and a few months mm. later, they're back round to the beginning of trying to lose it again. Yes, I see many yo-yo dieters who will say you know i've been doing this for 20 years yo-yo dieting is often a signal that the emotional brain is hijacking the driving seat in times of stress and all the good intentions evaporate it's really discouraging when you've tried so hard to make positive changes and the old willpower in the anterior cingulate does really well for a time and then it's all blown out of the water and we're enticed by that internal voice that says, I need just a bit of comfort right now. And then, well, that's done it. What's the point? I might as well finish it all. I look horrible anyway, etc. One of the things that we try to do in the clinic is to encourage people to make dietary changes. So a diet is a sustainable way of eating for the rest of your life. It's not a fad. Yeah. And it's not starving. It's not And it's just... not starving. So yeah. um, yes, there can be fasting within that uh, process, but um, it's learning to eat in a way that's sustainable and nourishes your body and your brain consistently. Yes, that you can um, keep up. Yes. yes. So there are a number of factors at play here. If Emotional capacity or energy is low, particularly chronically so, it's difficult. What motivational drivers do we have to make the positive changes necessary? And where are we on the cycle of change? The fear of um, ill health is a big one. Mobility or lack of, increasing lack of is quite a big driver. Wanting to become pregnant and have children can be just wanting to feel in control of what goes on in your head and not be thinking about it all of the time are there emotional reasons for eating that are still active and haven't yet been addressed conditioned negative thinking and self-limiting beliefs can make us feel very stuck raised emotional arousal drives the production of cortisol so if high and fairly continuous Science says that the cortisol will increase appetite and drive abdominal fat storage as well. Of course, because that's the system thinking. We need to store because we don't know what's happening. Yeah. Things are uncertain. Yes. yes. Survival kicking in. Survival kicking in, absolutely. Mm. Um, Now, how can therapy skills help with all of this to help people regain control? Um, Firstly, I keep a full range of outcome measures from start to finish of therapy. So I can direct the therapy effectively. We can measure the change together, which reinforces and affirms their ability to make those changes and reach those goals. Some key characteristics of therapy are things like the confidentiality, the quality of the attention and the accountability within the session. I often use that phrase, they're needing to borrow a brain temporarily to help yeah. fix the problem. So it's about, you know, us drawing, me drawing alongside and us working together. It takes huge courage to do life, often with years of accumulated active trauma resulting in the weight gain. And that's due So no judgment is an essential ingredient of the therapy. Listening to the history about their weight gain, when it happened, 
what was done and said, how they and significant others might perceive the problem. Hearing about their relationship with food and the language they have gathered over their life about it and how they talk about it internally in their head. It can be all pervasive, dictating what they do, where they go, what they buy, what, how and when they eat. And there's huge amounts of planning going on. It takes up hours and hours of their so- at that point, it's really bullying them in a sense, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, it's interesting how in this culture we tend to associate food with reward and celebration from an early yes. age too. Yes, we don't celebrate by fasting really, do we? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. And of course, food, sorry to interrupt again, it just it strikes me food is often a way of welcoming people um, Mm. showing support, showing that you love them. There's so much positive in food, isn't there? Uh, even yeah. just with a na- na- the neighbourly taking around a, some fresh baking to a new neighbour or something like that. It's mm. all very food-oriented. Yes. To, to the point, actually, in our culture, that if, you, if someone comes to your door um, to say hello or whatever, if you don't offer them a cup of tea, or, which invariably goes with a biscuit, you, f- you feel like you haven't been friendly. So it's a sign of friendliness as well, isn't it? Yes, it's very much a part of hospitality. Yeah. But as our grandmothers would say, all things in moderation. <laughs> yes. yes. So rationalising and reframing where appropriate is really important. Perhaps gently challenging those self-limiting and often long-held beliefs that control the way something is thought about and whether it can change or not. Yes remembering that neuroplasticity is alive and well every day of our lives Uh, as in our brains can grow and change and old habits can be can be killed off the yes yes. we can change the way that we think about things we can change the way that we perceive ourselves and there's quite a lot of traditional misinformation out there that needs challenging too. Identifying any past trauma that may still be active to measure and treat at the optimum moment. And often there is anger, resentment, guilt and shame to be resolved as well. Yes. Gathering all the positive resources they have within them is another important element of the work to make the changes for themselves. And often they don't realize they have so much to draw on. Yeah, resources are amazing, yes. And this empowerment is so powerful for this group who often feel very negative about themselves and they've received constant feedback from the world around them that that is negative and yes. down. That they, don't, that they don't look good, that they're failing, et cetera, et cetera that they don't count or whatever it is, yeah. Another area is all aspects of, of psychoeducation, which I know is an, import, it's an important part. So just teaching them how the brain works, how the body works, needs and resources, that can be a real light bulb moment for people, can't it? Huge light bulb moment, yes. Incredibly important. And the new knowledge that it brings often cancels out that first raft of fear because it helps to understand why they feel like they do and brings hope that things can actually be different. And it also gives concrete reasons for goal setting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
learning strategies to lower emotional arousal is key. We start that right from the beginning. So reducing the cortisol levels and the obsessive negative head chatter, which often accompanies uh, it. Regaining control internally so that they're able to think clearly, make decisions, get things in perspective and draw on all the knowledge and skills that they begin to realize they have. Begin the process of getting their needs met more effectively. So having a really good look at all of those needs um, and seeing where the gaps are, what they can begin to change to make a difference. Empowering them to make the changes and then identifying sort of realistic and achievable goals. Doesn't matter how small they are, but they need to be in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this can all be reinforced in trance, really, to maximize the chance for real positive change. So this is when you sort of rehearse, and allow them to use their imagination to see the future, see what they could be looking like and what they could be doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. How they, how they and, could be feeling. And reinforce some of that reframing and rationalizing of the way that they're thinking. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Yes. Now, Fiona, you as we said at the beginning, work with trauma as well. How, what is the link? There's a link between trauma and obesity in both adults and children. What, what would you say that is? Mm. Um, first of all, I just want to say that this, uh, I don't treat anybody in this clinic under the age of 18. So, so it's not children as per se, yes. No, no. Active past trauma often underlies emotional eating and the folk in the clinic who are referred to me invariably have underlying past trauma because it's the reason that um, they've had the enduring difficulty in keeping off the weight as well as losing it in the first place. So if it's lifelong, commonly it can be due to a lack of attachment neglect, abuse, bullying in childhood, and then there can be domestic abuse in relationships, workplace bullying and harassment, or a whole range of other incidental traumatic events. So it's about establishing what is there and, and what needs to, to be treated. If yes. the trauma goes back a long way, the person may have precious few or no good memories to draw on. Their norm is living life in a high state of emotional arousal, often chronically hypervigilant, and sometimes with a very chaotic breathing pattern as a result, with little understanding of internal peace and control. So you can see the need for comfort behaviours or self-harm or yes. addiction in those circumstances. So I'm, I'm, I'm hearing there that even if they can't identify what the original trauma might have been, Mm. You, you can help them in terms of things like those breathing, calming down strategies, breathing patterns. Yes, we certainly start um, by learning those strategies and grounding and relaxing and calming um, are, are all very key initial strategies. And then we will treat whatever we can alongside rationalizing and reframing their perception of the problem where necessary. Yeah. On many occasions, the changes that can be achieved are life altering and there follows a period of adjustment to a new norm, which they find nothing short of alien and 
miraculous really often asking if things are going to go back again um they may well need to wait weeks or months for the true restorative sleep to restore their emotional capacity and, and their exhausted brain again while we can plan how they will use it to good effect mm. um, and they're becoming acclimatized to actually feeling very different having more energy to do life in the way that they want to do it and realizing actually what their full potential yes and having that spare capacity to be able to think about other things as well absolutely absolutely gosh yes so the you're you've begun to tell me this really the skills what skills do you use to help people overcome emotional distress and trauma so really, that's what you've been talking about, but perhaps well, there's something. I, I've mentioned a number already, as you say, but where trauma is concerned, I often use um, the technique called visual kinesthetic dissociation or the, ro- the rewind technique because it's safe, fast and effective in most cases. It can be used creatively where more autistic people find it difficult to use the imagination but need a more concrete form of process. It involves demonstrating to the emotional brain when the person is deeply relaxed in the REM state that previously traumatizing experiences no longer cause the same level of emotional arousal and therefore do not constitute a threat to the person's survival. Their emotional brain is then able to detach the associated emotional response and refile the traumatic memory, moving it from the emotional memory to the long-term memory in the hippocampus, so that in future can't be triggered, causing unnecessary emotional arousal and all the destabilizing effects that follow. Yes, so it's, it's still there in terms of long-term memory, but the emotions have been unhooked from it in effect. That's right. They? Yes. That's right. And uh, just for any listeners who are wondering, the rewind technique is something that... Uh, you can look up on our Human Givens Institute website, so you'll get a full explanation of it there. Now, Fiona, how can you, alongside of that, really restore self-esteem and confidence and self-worth? Teaching about the observing self is an important step here. Learning to separate their self, who is unchanging, from their feelings, thoughts, behavior, the obesity, all of which can change and learning that they have the resources within themselves to make those changes. It's a very empowering step, all of that. Yes, I see, especially that obesity. I love the way you said that you separate yourself from the obesity. It's not who you are. Mm, mm. So when they arrive feeling they've done everything possible or believe they'll have to live with it forever and can't imagine feeling better just fearing the deteriorating health consequences. Often it's possible for them to retrieve memories of being able to move naturally with no extra weight. So going back and imagining themselves playing sport as a child or climbing trees or playing football or dancing, it's possible for them to reimagine that and note the feelings back then and connect with them and feel the energizing um, that that provides them with yes. and motivating them to make the positive changes, however small, going forward. Mm. 
So as they begin to make changes in their understanding and their thinking and their behaviours, their confidence begins to rise, which in turn motivates further changes, whilst usually quietly restoring their sleep balance along the way. And then that leads to freedom from craving and addictions, more mental clarity, feeling more energised, sometimes there's a reversal of chronic physical symptoms or pain, improved body image, quality of relationships can be improved or even transformed and others notice the changes too and give them sort of positive feedback. Emotional needs more effectively met so that they can engage with life and feel that they can make a contribution. So this is getting on to uh, the, the good cycle, the, the, the positive cycle that we were talking about earlier. That's right, it is. Mm. It is. And how, how do you approach body image with an obese person? Not at the beginning. <laughs> right. But when yes. they are on the way with more knowledge, more awareness, able to think rationally, and they've got some strategies under their belt, with a few successful goals achieved. So challenging gently those conditioned beliefs about themselves, offering alternatives, reframing, straightening out some of the myths, and challenging some beliefs that are contrary to up-to-date evidence so that you're just straightening out all the thinking and their self-perception and as they begin to achieve things for themselves the confidence is rising and the needs getting met and they feel in a place where they want to care for themselves and it matters what they look like yes um, and that can be Yes, it begins to happen quite naturally. It's rather yeah. like pushing the first domino. How lovely. Yes, <laughs> lovely moment. Now, there's a, a, a slightly different question here. Is the responsibility with the individual or with their immediate family or partner? Those closest can help or hinder choosing food, meals, lifestyle changes, exercise, feeling loved and valued, and supported in their endeavour to get their needs met well is really, really helpful. Yes, I, I'm just thinking often, um, especially with children, maybe the, the, the household provider who's doing all the cooking, mm. again, going back to this thing of, uh, I love you so much, I'm going to feed you, mm. can actually be very detrimental. Yes, yes. And, and very often where, where people have been fed by a parent, you know, it's interesting to look at why the mother was a feeder. Yes, uh, there's a whole story there as well. Yes, and rationalise all of that. Um, and sometimes um, people eat because actually they weren't fed. Food was really scarce um, yes. and they didn't know when they were going to eat as a child. So it's almost as though, you know, when the food is there and on offer, you don't turn it down. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. So yeah. helping them actually sort of just have a look at what was happening and why it might have been happening is really helpful in resolving some of those questions and helping them make wise, healthy decisions going forward. Yeah. Yes, so yes. having an accountability buddy can really help us stick on track for long enough to form new good habits for the future. So that's having a friend who you share the whole sort of... Yeah, a friend whole, or a partner. 
and yeah. and sometimes you know they they have um issues with weight management and so they can team up and do it together and be accountable to one another which is which is helpful as well yeah yeah yeah. Now, Fiona, we uh, quite a while ago now we talked about bariatric surgery. Where, there are occasions when that is the right answer, I assume. Otherwise, it wouldn't be done. Yes, um, I'm of, of personally of the mind that if it could possibly be avoided, that would be great. Um, the official criteria are a BMI of more than forty or a BMI of thirty plus with comorbidities for life-saving reasons or long-standing inability to lose weight. Um, my colleague, the nutritional advisor on the team, tries not to refer anybody with a BMI of less than 35. Yeah. And since do, 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 people, do people come asking for it? Do they, do they see yeah. it as an easy solution? They do, but usually because they're desperate and they feel they've tried everything else and they can't see that there's any alternative. So since I've been imposed, it's been good to establish that there is no point in going for surgery when emotional eating is still a regular coping strategy. Mm. In my opinion, whatever is causing this needs to be addressed first and then see how different they feel and whether their ability to change their weight improves. So people will often come believing that all else has failed and surgery is the only option left but have not known what it feels like to be free of the emotional tyranny they're carrying and able to make healthy choices consistently. Yes, absolutely. So we discuss the fact that it's possible to have the surgery and then eat through it rather than remaining controlled by it. So when we've addressed the reasons for emotional eating and they've developed new healthy habits and are getting their needs met, they're then in a much better place to weigh the options offered by the bariatric team and understand the implications of the surgery. Some choosing not to have irrevocable changes made to their gut, but remain with the conservative options. Now they feel stronger. Yes, because bar bariatric surgery, just to be clear, is, is when the, the stomach's made smaller or a bit of intestines taken out? Or what? Yeah, you can have sleeves and bands and uh, ectomies of various sorts. Mm. So it's not, it's not for the faint-hearted, it's, it's major yeah. surgery. Yes, um, and, you know, it is irrevocable. Um, and, and then, you know, there's always things like the complications of adhesions and yeah. um, all of that. But it can affect the foods that you're able to eat, so it has an impact on... Um, social eating and when and how much and where and what's available and it um, it makes quite a difference yeah yeah some, so some people feel up for it and able to embrace it others really struggle mm, yeah well Fiona that is all our questions for today but is there anything else you'd like to add um, just, I never cease to have respect for this group of people who've often been scorned and scoffed at whilst having the courage to do life carrying immeasurable amounts of trauma under very difficult circumstances. And they often find they have huge resources within them 
with which they're able to embrace their new life with. And that gives me such joy. Yes, that's, that's lovely, isn't it? When you can actually help someone to see their inner resources. Yeah, um, and we get really excited when they make the changes. Apparently, there was a recent post on Facebook which said, love your body for what it can do, not what it looks like. I that's would like to add, and your brain for keeping the whole show on the road. <laughs> that's lovely, yes, absolutely. And we forget that our brain is up there keeping the whole show on the road and, uh, uh, and able to control things. Yes. Yeah. That is brilliant, Fiona. Thank you so much for talking us through this such an important topic and so close to many people's hearts, I, I feel sure. Mm. Um, I'm sure this discussion will help a lot of people. And just thank you so much. And I, I wish you well in your, uh, your trip, upcoming trip to Africa. Now to our listeners, please do share this podcast with anyone you think might find it interesting or useful. And if you'd like to seek further advice or therapy from Fiona, her profile can be found on the Human Givens website, which is www.hgi.org.uk. And if you go forward slash find therapist, you'll find Fiona. Uh, we'll also probably put Fiona on this podcast uh, uh, page. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>